Well, good morning, everybody. It is actually a little bit odd to be preaching this morning. I'm excited about it, but I haven't been in a church that is familiar to me since June 6th. So our church gave my family the opportunity to go on sabbatical this summer, and we are not allowed to go to church at our church until August 15th. So I have stood before a group of campers and talked, but to stand before people, most of whom I recognize in a place that is at least somewhat familiar, it's really odd. And it shouldn't be odd. It's been, what, four Sundays, three Sundays? I, it's almost like we're back in quarantine. I have no idea what day of the week it is most of the time. Um, oh, it's Saturday? Who knew, right? Uh, it's, but it, it's, it's odd. It, it hasn't been that long, but it feels like it's been forever. But I'm excited. I, I find myself actually a little bit more um, anxious isn't quite the right word. Excited might be the right word. So, so bear with me if I get exuberant. I'll try not to be overly passionate. That's not true. I actually will be overly passionate. We read the passage that we already are going, or we already read the passage we're going to look at this morning. But before we jump into that and look at the, the preeminence of Jesus, right? That is really the focus. But we're going to be looking at it in terms of, of creating a structure, a framework within which you can evaluate things scripturally and biblically. And the only way you can do that is to see Christ in the right place. I remember taking the ACT test when I was in high school. I am odd. I thought it was fun. Okay? I think I got it from my dad. So you can blame all of this on him. It's okay. But I thought taking that test was kind of fun. You got to do all sorts of things nobody typically asks you to do. I didn't really like the reading part. I'm not a fast reader, certainly wasn't a fast reader then, and, and my score was greatly uh, changed by my inability to read quickly. However, I'd always been curious how they score this. You get a score from 1 to 36. Why 36? I still don't have an answer for that, but I always assumed to get a 36, you got all the answers right. To get a 35, you got a certain percent of the, percentage of them wrong. 34 is another step down and down and down. And I found out that that's not true. I found out that, that the ACT tests are not graded based on how many questions you get right. They're graded on how many questions you got right compared to the other people who took the test. So you don't have to get every question right in order to get a 36 on the ACT. You just have to get as many questions right as the next person who got as many questions right. So you could get 15 questions wrong and still get a 36. I learned that from a man named Dr. Wise. Now, Dr. Wise was and is the smartest person I've ever met. And God, in his humor, allowed him to have the name Kurt Wise, and he's brilliant. And he went to the University of Chicago. If you're not familiar with the University of Chicago, it is a death trap for anybody who wants to excel. So this smartest guy that I met went to the University of Chicago, graduated valedictorian of his class with an average test score of 46. 46% right on his test was his average, and he was the valedictorian of his class. 
That is just sadistic. It's, it's mean. But what they did was they made a bell curve. If you're familiar with statistics, it, a bell curve says the middle score gets a C. Then the next group of students, it's called the standard deviation, but the next step up gets the next grades, and the next step up gets above that. And that's the way the ACT score is, tested, or is scored as well. And that's what he taught me. So they always have a perfect bell curve to it. The most right compared to everybody else gets the 36. And then the most number of people, which is the middle score, gets a 16. And then back down to the bottom. I thought that was interesting. But what I found out is in that test and in other tests, I found out it was the same as when I played sports. You did well on your team, but you were always compared to something, compared to the other team. Now, you could score all the points you wanted, but if your team still lost, you still lost. It wasn't just dependent on how well you did, but it was how well you did compared to how well the other team did. It's how well you did compared to the other people who took the test. It's how well you did compared to something. And even if it's just a regular test, like the test Dr. Wise gave to us, it was a multiple choice test, 10 questions. And the instructions were simply circle all that apply. 10 questions, five options for each question. I kid you not, the 100% right for that test was to circle nothing. Right? Not one thing was right on any option. But you're compared in that case to objective reality. Now, one is not better than the other. One is just simply we're comparing your answers to this correct set of answers, or we're comparing your answers to everybody else who gave answers. But we're always compared to something. We can't get away from it. As much as we'd like to get away from it, we can't. And so when we look at what it means to evaluate something biblically, we must stand with an opinion that is not our opinion. We must stand with a perspective that says we're comparing this thing to something. Now, the quick and dirty and easy answer that we give as Christians is we compare it to the Bible. And that's great, but it's not actually a full answer. You'd get half marks on a test for that because the scripture is vitally important. We're going to look at a passage that actually lowers, hear me out before you throw me out, it lowers the position of the Bible by elevating Jesus, but it lowers the position of the Bible comparatively. So when we evaluate something, we must not just say, oh, what is it against the Bible, but we must evaluate it compared to something even higher than that, which the Bible is what God uses to reveal. So it doesn't actually change the answer there. You're still comparing it to the Bible, but you're not just comparing it to the Bible. You're comparing it to something. What is that something? He. He's speaking about Christ. Paul is speaking about Christ in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of God, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Do you see a theme? Just in, just in that little bit. Do you catch the theme at all? 
You've got Jesus, and you've got everything else. You've got Jesus, and you've got everything else. It was all made for him, by him, through him, to bring him glory, to be his. He is above it all. And he is the head of the body, the church. So now there's a transition from just all these general things to, to this group of people, but bigger than this group of people, the group of people who is the true church, those who are followers of Jesus. He's the head of those. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And that becomes the focal word of all of this passage. It all builds up to a succinct statement of Christ being preeminent in all things. So he explains what he's preeminent over. Everything. So that he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we shift from the things that he is preeminent over to the statement, the central statement that he is preeminent over all things to an explanation of why. Because the fullness of God dwelt in him and he reconciled everything to himself. Now, contrary to popular opinion, I'm not actually anti-American. I'm not actually anti-patriotic. That's what my wife accuses me of. Mainly because on days like this, I forgot that it was the 4th of July. I mean, I really, really actually forgot that it was the 4th of July. And so she had all of the patriotic 4th of July clothes laid out for everybody to wear, and I didn't put them on one of our kids. So if you notice that one of our kids looks different than the other, um, it's because dad dressed him not realizing that I was supposed to put different things on him. It's not that I hate America. It's not that I'm anti-patriotic. It's really not. But when we, when we look at this, we see that there is, a, there is a focus that Paul has and that we are to have that has, ha that has Christ so far above everything else that it makes the other things worthless. And when you take that perspective and build your framework for evaluation on that, then all of a sudden we stand and we look at things differently. We don't say, is that good or bad? But that's a good question. We don't say, is that right or wrong? But that's a good question. But those all become, we have what we understand to be primary things. That's the word that we frequently use. We then have secondary things. And that's a word that we use. Then we have tertiary things and quadrationary things. I've made that one up just so you know. I have no idea what that word is. But primary is first important. Secondary is second level. Tertiary is third level. And whatever the next ones are, we keep going down. We have a tendency to ask secondary questions to try to get primary answers. So we ask, is it right or wrong? It's a good question, but it's a secondary question. We ask, is it good or bad? It's a good question, but it's a secondary question. So what becomes the primary question? I'm glad you asked. My dad has the answer for that. You can ask him after the service. He's not, he's not so sure about that. The primary question is simply this. Does it exalt Jesus? Does it? If he is truly preeminent over all of these things, if he's first, if he's of most importance, then we shouldn't ask the questions, is this good, is this right, 
we should ask the question, does it exalt Christ? Because if it does, it's good. If it does, it's right. If you're not sure, then you move to secondary questions. I don't, I don't know if this brings glory to Jesus. So now let's step back. Is it a right thing to do? Is it a good thing to do? Is it a scriptural thing to do? Is it beneficial to other people to do it? There's all sorts of secondary questions that we can ask. But we live in a culture that's ignoring, church-wise, the primary question, which is, does it glorify Jesus? And if it doesn't, then it's not worth having. It's not worth doing. You might question that. We've been taught growing up to question that. Oh, I don't want to just get rid of this stuff. I don't want to. This isn't bad. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 1. And Philippians is also written by Paul. So we've got these, these epistles written by Paul that are relatively short and succinct. They're relatively pointed and direct, and they use relatively long sentences. If you don't know anything about Paul's writing, the guy would fail English class. My mother graded my stuff. My sister edits things. They would have a red pen field day with the run-on, long, exceptionally verbose sentences of this man, Paul, that God was working through to write out his scriptures. Right? So when we say that this is Paul's writing, we're not saying Paul was the mental author of it. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, carried him along to write what he was to write, to portray what he was to portray, yet it was the personality of Paul, hence the ridiculous sentences, that comes through in the character of the writing, the, the style of the writing. And he writes this in Philippians. There's a whole story a whole bit at the beginning where he says, hey, I'm better than you. I know that sounds weird. But that's really what he writes. At the beginning of chapter 3, he writes, I'm better than you. If, I could, if we could earn God's favor, I did it better. Okay? So understand that. I not only had all of the things that, that the good Jews were supposed to have, the ones that God had, had said to do, these are all good things. Not only did I have all that, but then as I became a man, I even persecuted the church for zeal for this, this God that I thought I understood, not recognizing the movement that God had through Christ, not recognizing the change, not recognizing the Messiah, which is crazy, but not recognizing that. And he writes, I did it better than you did, okay? But, he begins in verse 7, but, you ever had somebody say, I don't want to be offensive. And when the next word is but, you know what they're going to be? Offensive. I don't want to be judgmental, but, you know, I hate you. Hmm. I, don't want to be a, I don't want to be mean, but um, I don't like you. I don't want to cause division, but I'm right and you're wrong. That little but changes things. And sometimes it's what we mean. Sometimes it's not what we mean. I sat with a disciple of mine at one point. We sat at Starbucks, which is really not my favorite place to sit and talk, but it worked. And we were talking. I said, I love this person, but I don't like this, or but I can't let this happen. And he said, no, 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 no. You love that person, so you want this for them. And what I wanted for them was not what they wanted for themselves. 
details are irrelevant. But it was what was really best for that person. I loved this guy, so I wanted this thing to happen. Paul here doesn't say, I did it better than you, so here's my great position. He says, I did it better than you, but, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Whoa. In our minds, in our mind's economy, we have a tendency to say this. Whatever gain I had, I count as zero. If it was a plus 10, I'm going to count it as a zero. See how much I'm sacrificing? I'm counting my plus 10s as zeros, my plus 12s as zeros. I'm counting my plus 5s as zeros. I think it's more accurate, actually, to say I'm counting my plus 10s as negative 10. I'm counting my plus 12s as negative 12. The more this thing was advantageous to me when I misunderstood it, the more it is disadvantageous to me now. Why? Just imagine you were Paul for a moment. The guy was smart. The guy had everything going for him. He had power and position and prominence. And when he followed Christ, those things didn't just go to zero. He was now hated all the more because of this position that he took. So his plus tens went to negative ten. Not only that, he would have a tendency to rely on those things still. Have you ever noticed that when you get convicted by the Holy Spirit, that there's something in your life that, that shouldn't be there, but it's actually a strength that you have? I have the strength of confidence. Got that from my mother. I have the strength of confidence, and when I rely on that confidence on my own, it becomes the weakness, the disadvantage of arrogance. Even if it doesn't become arrogance, it becomes something that works contrary to the dependence on the Holy Spirit that we are to have because I begin to think that I can do it on my own because there's many ways in which if you look at it just from the outside, it looks like I could do it on my own. But as soon as I start to do that, it doesn't go from a plus 10 to a zero. It goes from a plus 10 to a minus 20 real quick. That's what we see here. So it's not just Paul counts what he counted as gain, as neutral. He counts it as a loss. And if that seems radical, he's about to go further. Now, I had this discussion with my sister and her husband just a little bit ago because I was reminded that I talked about poop brownies the last time I was here. And if you remember that, you'll remember the analogy. It was about how if there's just a little bit of poop in a brownie, it's really bad. Like, none of the brownie is good, right? But, but this is going to go even more extreme than that. And only for the purpose of making a point. Here's what Paul writes. Whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Christ is elevated to the preeminent position. In those words, that's what he's saying. Christ is elevated to the preeminent position. Everything else is loss. Now to get a good picture of what that everything else as loss is, for his sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a good word. It sounds very British. It's a word that we don't really use all that much in our culture. And, and this is, if you were to pull open a Greek concordance, and you were to go to this word, and you were to find it, and it were to give you the Greek word, and it's skubalon, and it were to give you the English word, it might say rubbish in parentheses one. You know what that would mean? One time in all of its uses in the Bible, it's translated as rubbish. Otherwise, it's translated as dung, refuse, excrement, except that's not really what it is. So, so Paul is taking this idea, he's saying, everything that was gained is a loss. Worse than that, it's like manure, dung, refuse, except that it was a more vulgar term for that in their culture. No, 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 whatever you're thinking, it was more vulgar than that. This was the crudest, most vulgar way to say dung that they had access to, or at least that we know they had access to in the scriptures. Why? Not because swearing is a good thing. That's not the point. The point is that he wanted, Christ wanted us to understand that all of the things that we can gain in this life, when we compare it to him, is like what's in the bottom of an outhouse when you have to go into it. It is disgusting, comparatively. Now, those things aren't bad. This is a mind game and a picture, right? Paul is describing and, and creating an understanding for people. So, so don't think, oh, everything's bad. Throw it all away. No, that's not the point. The point is that its position in all of its greatness is nothing. It's gross. It's unworthy trash compared to Jesus. So when we step back and we get that picture and we say, okay, there's Christ and he's preeminent and here's these other things, they're pretty good too. No, they're not. And then when we begin to build this framework for evaluation, we say, okay, now if something doesn't raise the honor of Christ, should I have it? Should I do it? Then we start wondering, are there things in our lives that, that can't do that? I was, I'm a golfer, a nine-finger golfer at this point. And, and there was a time when we lived in Nebraska that golf started to hold a, a position in my life that it ought not hold. And I didn't realize it. And months and months went by, and, and finally somebody said something, somebody did something, something happened so that I, so this became aware to me. But I had this, this conviction that I needed to figure out which was more important to me, golf or Jesus. You do things when you're younger in life that, that surprise you later. Now, I'm not that old, but I feel old, okay? So this was a decade ago. I quit golf for the two best months to golf in Nebraska. Nebraska doesn't grow grass. It's very much like here. They have a really hard time making things grow and be nice. 
And for May and June, I didn't play any golf at all. And God and I had a deal. There were a certain set of things that would happen. And when those things happened, then I would be willing to play golf again. That wasn't uh, uh, some sort of Brock being demanding of God. It was, God, I'm going to ask you to do something. And when you make it happen, I'll take that as a sign that I can start doing this again. Because my heart will be in a better place. My heart had gotten to where golf was the most important thing when I was out golfing. When I was orchestrating my day, I was orchestrating it around, how can I get out to the driving range? I would really love to hit some balls. How do I go out to the course? I'd really love to play some golf. I'd go out there by myself and spend two hours, me and a ball, and playing golf, and I'd love it. Except that's all it was. So how can golf become something that's honoring to Jesus? And some of you don't know, and you won't even believe me when I tell you. Because golf can honor Jesus. It really can. Typically now, I have two things that go on when I play golf. One, I'm with somebody else so that I can engage with them during this time. Or two, I write down on each hole who I'm going to pray for. So there's nine holes or 18 holes or whatever it is. It's who am I praying for when I'm not hitting a ball, who am I praying for during that hole? And then it becomes an event, an activity that honors Christ. He doesn't, I'm going to say he doesn't care what score I get. It's not theologically quite the way I should say it. But it's not really relevant as to what score I get when I play golf. But my heart is honoring him in that moment. My heart is engaging with other people of his in that moment. And that makes golf something that elevates the name of Jesus as opposed to lowering it more to the common level of golf itself. So that's how it happened for me. How is it going to look for you? I don't know. But there are things in your life that could be used to glorify Jesus. There are things in your life that you're not using to glorify Jesus. And there's things in each of our lives that can't glorify Jesus. And when we step back and we compare each one of those things... To Christ, is it glorifying, honoring, raising the value that other people see of Jesus? Then do that thing. And if you look at it and you say, well, it's really not, then don't do that thing. That thing is exhausting, though, to live life like that. The author of Hebrews writes this, therefore... So he's been talking about the hall of faith, all these people of great faith, some moments of great faith, some lives of great faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, seeing him in front of us, higher than us, and the goal that we are running toward, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we do to not become weary of this. Because as soon as we begin to evaluate the things of our life, the things of our church's life, the things of our town's life, and say, are we bringing honor and glory to Jesus in these things, we will find that we become exhausted. Why? Because this is a job that is too big for us. We must then depend on the Holy Spirit. So Jesus writes in John chapter 15 that he's the vine and we're the branches. All right? Just so we're clear, that's a metaphor. 
He is not actually a vine. We are not actually branches. But in the picture, he's a vine. We're branches. And if we're not connected to him, we are of no use. We can't do anything. We have not enough strength on our own. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So we depend on the Spirit to do these things in us and through us. But we find that it's a draining experience. Because it really is a draining experience. So that brings us to Galatians chapter 6. And Paul, again, writing now to a different church in a different town, says, bear one another's burdens. And those of you who are spiritual, look out for the others. If spiritual maturity is what God has fostered in you, look for people who need some help. But don't assume that those people who have spiritual maturity don't need some help sometimes too. They need somebody to bear one another's burdens. Because when Paul writes that, he doesn't say, those of you who are spiritual, bear other people's burdens. Yours you can deal with on your own. No. He says to everyone, bear one another's burdens. When this is exhausting to people, and it doesn't matter if you're 8 or if you're 88, if this is exhausting and you see that somebody's trying and they're struggling, help them out. You can't do it for them, but you can help. Help bear that burden. Why? Because helping them put Christ as the preeminent position in their life, to evaluate things that way, that's helpful. Now, this will probably create some discussions within your church as you talk about what does church look like? It will create some discussions if done right amongst the elders. Where are we going and what are we doing? Because what's really easy is you will take some time and you'll evaluate all these things. Jettison the things that you don't, that, that you don't think are, are bring, bringing honor to Christ. And then you stick with the things that are. And then in time, we stop evaluating these things. And when we stop evaluating these things, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, those things start to take a different role. So the elders are the ones responsible to do that before God for the church. But the church can look at it and say, oh, hey, I'm going to ask Dan, how is... How is this thing over here? So you have this fellowship time after the service. Uh, community time, fun time, food time, drink time. I don't know what you call it. But you have this time. Uh, somebody should ask the question. Hey, how does that bring honor to Jesus? I think there's a great answer to that. But if there's not an answer to it, you know what you should do with it? Kick it out. Not the person, the time. And ask those questions. Want to ask those questions. Want people to ask those questions of you. Now, one of the things that I've always appreciated about here is you guys have always valued the Word of God very highly. And I appreciate that immensely. In John, I told you we were coming to this, and we are. John chapter 5. It's the gospel of John, right? The story of the, the earthly life of Jesus. And he's engaging the Pharisees, whom he engaged often. And he says this to them. There are not a whole lot of times that there are me versus you statements from Jesus in the Bible. There are times. This is one of them. 
He says, you. He's not talking about himself. He's not talking about his followers. He's pointing his finger at the Pharisees, right? The ones who, who know stuff, know lots of stuff. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, when he says you search the scriptures, do you know how much these guys searched the scriptures? All the time. Their job wasn't to pastor people. It was to memorize scripture, to know what was there, to know the law inside and out, to be able to quote things and point to things always, always, always. So they searched the scriptures daily, 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 not for 15 minutes for their devotions, but for the bulk of their day as Pharisees. You search the scriptures. That's good because you think that in them you have eternal life. They're wrong. Eternal life does not come from the Bible. Because Jesus follows this by saying, but, or yet, it is the scriptures that point to me. Putting the focus where? Not on the Bible, but squarely on Jesus. We can even take this book, as great as it is, and give it a position it ought not have. That doesn't mean ever that you stop using it, looking at it, reading it, whatever. It means that you use it, look at it, read it, right, as pointing to Jesus. And we see that he's preeminent, even in his own statement. He's preeminent in all things. Remember back at the beginning of John? In the beginning was the Word, and he points that to being Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And it was life, and that life was the light of men. That's this Jesus, the preeminent one, the, ones who gives, the one who gives life, the one who gives light. He is the most important. And back to Colossians 1, that's exemplified. So his position of preeminence is exemplified not by just his death and not just by his resurrection, but by what those things accomplished. Jesus is not the only person to die, right? He's also not the only person to come back to life. He's also not the only person to ascend into heaven without dying preceding that, directly, immediately preceding that. But his life and death and ascension into heaven and resurrection from the dead accomplished something different because of who he is, because of, of his position and his preeminence, because of him being the Son of God, then when he died on the cross, God was able to take all of the wrath for our sins and pour them on his Son. Then when he came back from the dead, God was able to take all of the, the promise and the benefit of life eternal that is now in Christ and give it to us, his people. It's because of his position and who Jesus was that his death and resurrection mattered so much. And now we have an opportunity not just to believe that in a moment, but to live a life that, put, that sees him as preeminent and lives accordingly. That's what we have. That's what we get the opportunity to do. Yes, we live in a country that is free to worship Jesus how we like most of the time. 
We live in a country that doesn't punish us because we show up at church on Sunday morning, though they might have a parade going on at the same time. We live in a country that allows for those things, but does not see Jesus as preeminent. Because if Jesus is truly preeminent, then whatever you have to get rid of is totally fine because it's rubbish anyway. That's all it ever was. I hope that as we see Christ more and more clearly, that he takes not a clearer picture, but a higher position in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And I say I hope, but that's a silly way to say it because if we see Christ more clearly, he will take a more, a higher, a more powerful, a better position in our lives. So we read this to see Jesus. And as we see Jesus, we see him as preeminent and then we compare everything else to him and say, does it match up? And if it doesn't match up to him and it's not bringing glory and honor to him, then is it worth having? Sometimes the answer is yes, it is worth having. We just need to change how we're using it. But is it worth it? That is a question that should haunt us for our entire lives. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter how long and how many times you've answered that question. It should haunt us consistently. Am what I do, is what I'm doing worth Jesus? And if it's not, change it or stop. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the midst of the chaos of what's going out on out there this morning. We hear sirens. We heard a ridiculously loud airplane and we come to you recognizing your preeminence, recognizing your position, your power, your person, who you are, Lord. We ask that you would continue to build in us a deeper, more poignant understanding of your Son. And that we would then compare the things of our lives to the things of Christ. And we would... We would we would live in a way that holds him preeminent. Lord, we come to communion now in a few moments, and we ask that you would, would instill in our hearts a deep understanding of the cost of our salvation, and that that would not just show us the value that you place on us, but the value that you are in who you are. We do love you immensely, Father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.